I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Dr. Matt, I'm back from Mexico. I know. You're looking tan and... Well, not really tan because I wore a long sleeve shirt the whole time. So for those of you who don't know, me and my family took a a little vacation. Uh, We got invited into a reality TV show called The Survivalist. And The Survivalist is on BYU TV. Uh, you can just download the app. We're in the third season, so I'll be in the third season. Okay. And what it does is uh, it's kind of a combination of The Amazing Race meets Survivor. Uh, although nobody's ever voted off of the show, uh, you're out in the wilderness. Uh, you're, you're packing around your stuff, your tent, your sleeping bag, your food, your fire starter, everything you need to do. Uh, in the years past, it was two nights, three days. But when we got there, the host, Colin O'Brady, who's an amazing guy, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get him on the show, comes out and goes, we made some changes. And when you're in the TV world and people say we've made some changes, that's not good. Okay. <laughs> well, it can be good. And they said, well, now it's going to be three nights and four days. Uh, I'm the only. You didn't know that till you got there? No, I had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> okay. uh, we only watched two might, episodes. It might have been good to know before you showed up. That's what all my friends said. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, I, I, you know me, I like the surprise. I, well, I, I, but here's the, the truth of it. If, if I did this research and studied and all that stuff, I'd been living in my head for, you know, as long as it took to get to the show. And so I was just like, I know we're doing this. I've got my family. You're better spontaneous. I love spontaneity. Yep. And so I'm the only single parent to ever do the show. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So it was just me and my three kids. Usually it's two parents or two adults and two kids or three kids. And you go out on this journey. And the way they set up the show is there's usually some sort of problem in the family that you want to address and hopefully find closure it's like wilderness therapy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a little really, bit, k- kind of like that. Kind of forcing the family together to deal with an issue, and, and, and either find a, a, a positive outcome like work to get because you have to work together for the basics. Hundred percent, yeah, a hundred percent. And so, uh, you know, our story was me and my daughter Presley, and it was kind of on the heels of the letter. Okay, and uh, you know, I remember the producer asked Presley, you know, why do you want to do this show? And she goes, I want to replace some of the bad memories with good memories. Oh, that's a great answer. And so we were out there going to do that. And uh, I can't tell you what happened on the show. I can't tell you how we did on the show. Uh, the show will come out in the fall. All your kids came home with you, we, though? Yeah. Okay. And you didn't lose anybody? Didn't lose anybody. Okay. That's I good. can tell you that it was four days walking in the desert with 30-pound <laughs> backpacks. 
uh, up and down hills, uh, through river bottoms. Uh, it was it was Sounds pretty grueling. It was, so here's I can I can talk a little bit about it. But so my son, uh, who's ten years old and fast, yeah, very fast. We found out he's not that fast. Oh, dang it! But. He was the most excited to do the show. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, it's high adventure. I mean, it sounds amazing when you you're know, 10. And the tagline I'd been using for the six months before we did the show is, there's going to be a camera crew falling around. We're not going to die. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? <laughs> Try to reassure him. Yeah, just reassure. You know what I mean? Because yeah. the unknown was kind of getting to him. And I was like, hey, look, there's going to be a camera crew. So whatever it is, I think we can do it. Okay. I, I know we can do it. Right. Uh, but it was so interesting to see my son um, figure out who he is and what he's capable of. Mm. I mean, it, because I was I was talking to the producers and I was talking to my ex-wife and I was talking to my girlfriend. Uh, and for the most part, Bowden doesn't really know about my alcoholism. You know, he was there, but he was but very he's pretty young. young and probably insulated by having two older sisters. Yeah, and, all that. and and so he he would hear things, and he, every once in a while he'll 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 chime in with a thought, you know. And but most of it's just regurgitated stuff that he's either heard his sister say, or his mom, or even me, you know. But he just he wants to be a part of the conversation, so he so he'll jump in. Um, but for the most of my son's life, he's been pretty babied. Well, he's the youngest. Pretty right? coddled. Pretty. Two older sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're sitting there talking to the producers, and uh, Bowden thinks that somehow his ability to play video games really well is going to translate into the outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and, I think that's a common myth of yeah. kids that age. Fifth grade, you think you're all set if you play Call of Duty. And what I'm saying is that I don't think my son Bowden has ever been tested. Never in a tough situation. Never in a tough situation. Yeah. I mean, I think he's gone through tough situations, but never really had to look inside and dig deep and see what he's made. That's probably true for most of our kids nowadays, right? Like, I mean, life's, I mean, even if you're, you, you, the parents have struggles, most kids, their lives are, you know, pretty chill. And, and I'll leave you with this. And, and, and I thought it was pretty good. So me and him are walking and he's having a little bit of a breakdown. And I said, son. What day, four days, which day is this? Mm, probably third day. Okay, so he's tired. Yeah. Yeah. And he he won't say he was angry. He chooses to say he was annoyed, but he was angry. We know what that means. <laughs> he was angry. And if that kid could have cursed, he would have lit up the heavens with curse words. Yeah, yeah. But he's just so young and innocent and loving and pure that he doesn't think that way. Yeah. And he was just annoyed. And uh, I said, hey, bud, it's okay to cry, but can you cry and walk? That's <laughs> such a dad thing to you say. Know, I just said, can you do that? Yeah. Because crying is good, and I'll cry with you if you want. But yeah. crying's not going to make our problem or our obstacle go away. It's not going to get us there. Yeah. You know, so if, if you need to stop and you need to cry, I'm here with you, and I'll do that. But understand, when we're done crying, we still have to finish what's ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's walk. And he walked. And wow. I've never been so proud of my son. That's And I cool. can't wait to show you guys um, the, the show. Well, I'm really excited about it. Um, everybody I've talked to, people who've asked me about it, I, I think everyone's excited to see it. But I think that right there is a very cool, personal parenting moment 
where you can see your kids struggle with things and push through and persevere. I mean, that's what self-confidence is really made of. Um, self-esteem, all those things. So, I mean, that's a beautiful experience. And, and and the whole experience was absolutely magical. I mean, it really was. And uh, I, I'm, I'll be forever grateful to BYU TV and for people who helped us get on this show and and do this journey, this once-in-a-lifetime journey. Half the time that we were going through these obstacles and doing this wonderful, amazing race, I was like, do you guys realize people pay to do this? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they pay lots of money to do what we're doing. Yeah. And uh, we're getting the opportunity to do it for free and maybe win $10,000. That's awesome. You know, and so it it, it was neat. Uh, Everybody down there was great. All the other families were absolutely amazing. And so, uh, you know, wherever you can download apps on your smart TVs, on your phone, whatever, just the BYU TV app and check out Survivalist. And uh, they're they're, they're getting ready to launch their third season. I think we're all excited. Let me ask you one question, though. If this is too much giving it away, then that's okay. Uh But was there ever a moment where you had to do that thing where you stand on the poles and then you use the long things with the puff balls on the end and try to hit the other people off. No. You never did that? No. Oh, well, no. I don't know if I'll watch it. Then. But no, I'm just kidding. we did have to poop in the desert. Well, I bet. I mean, four days. <laughs> which, is, to which when you've got two princesses and oh, man. you've got to tell them. They're, they're, I mean, right. hey, Let me tell you, I empathize with the princesses on that because there have been some hiking trips that I've just – turned down because i'm like I, i'm not emotionally up for the pooping in the wilderness like yeah, I, it takes me about a week to gear up before i go to, i can tell you this yeah. because i don't want to put one daughter on blast but one daughter did not go for four days <laughs> the other daughter you're, you're gonna have to tune in to find out yeah, which daughter it was the yeah. other daughter did and yeah. the one who didn't has been riding the daughter who did Every day, really? just, just teasing her, just teasing her relentlessly about what happened. So, wow, okay, uh, it was it was really so, cool. When when can people sort of like? Is it? Uh, I think on your Instagram, you said it's maybe in the fall. In the fall, so it's a little bit of a wait. But, yeah, so they're it, yeah. they're going to be down there, and uh, I mean they're filming. We did. T- Two shows were going while I was down there, mm. and they were going to be down there for five weeks. So they were going to be doing ten shows. Oh, okay. Each episode is two families battling against each other. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha. And, uh, you know. So we have to wait through the summer, but then – Yeah. So we'll keep listeners posted when we get closer to remind them to – yeah, and and if you want, go check out the host. His name is Colin O'Brady. He's the first person to walk solo to Antarctica. He did what? He walked solo – to Antarctica. I didn't know you could even do that. You walked there? Yeah, he walked there. <laughs> he put all his food in the back of a sled and he dragged it across whatever it is to get you to Antarctica. Yeah. I don't know. It's something. Yeah. Yeah. But I but I was like, whoa. Wow, that's impressive. That's intense. He must be uh, one of those tough survivalists kind of outdoor He summited guys, Mount huh? Everest twice. Really? Yeah. Wow. Once by himself and then once with his wife. That's impressive. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Guys like that are just they're they're a different breed, right? Oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah. But his story's amazing. He's got a book. And speaking of books, our guest today has got a book. I can't wait to introduce you to Portia Louder. I we've been having a lot of fun talking with her uh before we started today. She's got an amazing story, an amazing message, and she's doing wonderful things. Stick around. The story of Portia Louder coming up next. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. 
Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. He's a lover of books. And our guest today is a writer of books. Her name is Portia Lauder. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So now we've been talking off air, and I've been playing the over-under game with uh, Dr. Matt and Josh of, uh, is it over four years or under four years that you spent in prison? Now, by first looking at you, I think most people would say, she's never spent a day in prison. Definitely. Uh, you, you, you don't have that. I guess I've been to prison. Look, and I and, and that's probably that's a, <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I will say that one of us guessed the closest. Yeah, who was that, Doctor Matt? Oh yeah, but you know, so I guessed. I well, we'll see what I guess, but but that was I was being sarcastic. I, I assumed the answer was zero. That's what that's what I, I I thought you would say. Yeah, but you were just going out. I was just joking. Yeah, but you spent how many years in prison, Portia? I spent four and a half years in prison on a seven year sentence. That's right. Uh, we're going to find out how that came to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where does the story of Portia Louder begin? Hmm. Begins in a small town in southern Utah. Uh, I'm the oldest of seven children, so I grew up um, kind of out in the country. My parents were very non-traditional. So um, we played outside, built huts, did all of those things. So you were like free-range children. We were. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you just kind of got out. And, yeah. you know, hey. We did. But that's how my childhood was, too. I mean, I never had my mom screaming out from the front porch, time to come home. It's when the lights came on. Right. The street lights came home. It was like, all right, it's time and to go then, home. You know, yeah. 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 I lived in the sun. I loved the sun. And it was in the water, in the sun, and outside was my life. And that's kind of the appeal of Southern Utah even today, right? People move down there, live down there because they want to live that sort of unstructured, free-range lifestyle, I think. Yeah, I think we might have been a little on the more unstructured side than most. (laughs) I mean, truly, like, uh, it became difficult, I would say, when I was like 12 or 13 to even deal with school or any kind of structure because, you know, it just, it wasn't something. In fact, my mom pulled all the other kids out and just said, do what you want, you know, study what you want, read what you want. And so, so she homeschooled them? Kind of. It doesn't sound like there was a lot of homeschooling. There wasn't a lot of home. There was no structure. Self-directed study. Self-directed study. Would you consider your parents kind of of the the hippie generation? Like they were more like, you know, do what you want. I'm okay. You're okay. Find your path. That kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. For real. But a lot of hippies wouldn't name their kids after an expensive car. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a Shakespeare character. Oh, I was going to say. I didn't know that. (laughs) I guess I'm not. educate you here. Yeah, okay. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 Well, huh. we'll, we'll, we'll get you another book to read. That joke backfired. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Yeah. No, so my parents were great. My mom is like an actress, so she's very creative. Um, and my dad is more the disciplined one. So uh, I would say as the oldest child, I took over as the parent in the home. Because <laughs> my mom the, wasn't the parent. <laughs> the oldest of seven, yeah. that, that's, a, that's a different kind of interesting dynamic. Yeah. What is the term you call that? Parentified? 
Uh, yeah, parentified, okay. uh, or sometimes they say adultified. But um, when the oldest child, if if the parents are busy or just not into parenting, right? Uh, the oldest children or some of the older children often take care of the younger ones, and you feel this unnatural responsibility because when you are a parent then it's okay to and you should act like a parent but when you're 12 Mm -hmm. you probably need to be 12 and so do you feel like that caused any issues for you like having to take over as the the mom of the family i think it caused issues and there was really a difference between my siblings and me you know as the oldest um the other thing that happened for me was I got into relationships super young, like 12 or 13. So before addiction came, I need to get married. I mean, I'm the family runner, you so know. romantically, 6th, <laughs> 7th yeah. grade, you were already Yeah, fighting. with a lot of yeah. older boys, you know. So, um, How and, much older? Um, I would say at 13, I was with a 16-year-old. And Ooh. then, you know, I mean, I by the time I was 15, it was guys that had graduated high school. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so it was it was a problem. And I, well, I started... Well, it's technically illegal, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not just a problem. Yeah, yeah. Why was that a problem for you? It wasn't then, but it is now. I mean, I've had the time to go back and, and look at my life from a different perspective. It was a problem for me because I could see how codependent I became and I just didn't know my own worth. And it was a real challenge because I turned to addiction, but I would say even more than addiction, it was like attention. I need a man in my life. And I ended up pregnant at 17. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you start dating at 12 or 13, that's bound to happen. I would say that, um, or I'm going to ask you, do you you feel like because of that un- a due responsibility of being sort of parentified and taking care of younger siblings and feeling like a mini adult. Do you feel like dating these older boys was, yeah, obviously for attention, but do you think it was also sort of an act of rebellion? Like, Hey, I, I just need to break free from being responsible. And that's the issue with being parentified or adultified at a young age yeah. is you're not ready for that kind of, you know, day-to-day responsibility. And so a lot of kids end up acting out yeah. in in either self-destructive or sort of um, uh, beyond their years sort of activities. So drugs, alcohol, sex, right. leaving school, all those kinds of things are pretty common. Yeah, I think so. I think I was frustrated. I honestly just wanted to go. You know, I wanted to get out and I did. Yeah. At 17, I moved out. I moved into a low-income apartment and had my son and looking back now i'm like gosh that was daunting you know i didn't really see a future for myself i'm living in this small town and i just figured this was the life i would have and it didn't end there i got pregnant again and had another child so you know by the time i'm 21 i have two children i'm a single mother and it was yeah did you ever um uh, marry any of those? I did. Fathers? I married them both. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was married less than a year both times. So, I mean, I really racked up um, some poor decisions. And my, I remember my dad saying, you're like a freight train. Like, I can't stop you. You just, you're going to go whatever direction you want. And there's no reasoning with you, which was true, you know. Mm. And that is when my addiction really took off. I really Do you remember the first time you tried um, drugs or alcohol? I remember I was 13 the first time I tried alcohol. Alcohol wasn't my jam. Like I wasn't hooked on alcohol. I liked to party and I liked the fun. But the first time I took a pain pill, an opiate, and I remember being 21 years old, I had all of the guilt and responsibility of a mother not doing it right 
I mean, in fact, my son asked me when he was going to get a dad that he could keep. Like, oh, it's, yeah. yeah. It's it heartbreaking, was, huh? It was really heartbreaking. And I, I had been prescribed some Percocet for headaches. Never abused him. Just had him in my cupboard. And I remember taking one and it just felt like if, like it filled the emptiness. It was like immediately I thought this is what this is the answer to my problems, <laughs> you know, and and then I thought I got to do whatever I can to keep taking these. You might or might not be surprised of how many people who have sat in that exact same seat who described exactly what you described about taking their first a pain pill, you know, yeah. and it was like either it filled the emptiness, it made make everything made everything make sense. Uh, it just it was the missing piece, uh, whatever it was. But they said for the first time in their life, that was the first time they could breathe yep. and not feel and whatever it is it does to you. But you remember it that vividly. Oh, yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that you you point out that um, you were 21, you had two kids, you were feeling like. Maybe I'm not doing everything the right way. So a lot of, I mean, I think what's implied in that statement is there was a lot of emotional turmoil going on in your life. And it's interesting with opiates. Obviously, they're originally intended to be just pain management, right? Mm-hmm. You're gonna, the block pain receptors. But I think they'd be, for, for, especially for people who become addicted to them. But even if, I know I've felt like this when I've had them before. It's like this emotional analgesic. It just makes all everything feels okay, and and I uh, I had a surgery one time and I took I don't remember what it was Percocet or Lortab or something and I remember just like laying back into a bed of marshmallows with, <laughs> with no care in the world and if you have a propensity towards addiction you can see how really it's not really the pain that you're managing the physical pain it's the emotional yeah. turmoil and it sounds like for you uh, that that was. Um, um, you needed a reprieve from that, but but this was a little much. Yeah, I think um, for me about that time, it was shortly before that that my dad ended up transferring up here to Salt Lake from that small town, and I had moved up here, and I actually got a job that I felt pretty good about, which helped me build some self esteem, and thought that I could get it together, but it wasn't happening. <laughs> I mean, I really just had that internal issue. And, and about that time is when I thought, this is the answer, the pills. Um, well, part of the issue there, just for the listener, is we go through emotional and psychological stages of development, just like we go through physical stages of development. And it's important to get through the whole stage to be ready for the next one. And there are different theories about that. But in general, I think most people would agree. And adolescence, childhood and adolescence are very, very important in developing a sense of self, your identity, your self-esteem, confidence, your hope for the future. And when you don't have a chance, when certain things take that away from you, like take, you know, becoming a parent of younger siblings Mm -hmm. by having children when you're technically still a child yourself, that robs you of having enough time and space to have that personal development. So I could see that even though by the time you were 21 and you had a job that you were starting to feel really good about, there was probably still, you you just hadn't had time to develop who you were. And so you have that you're kind of like a person in two different worlds without your, your feet on the ground. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately things got quite a bit worse before they got better. So it uh, yeah. did you. So after you took that first pill and you said, maybe this is the answer, mm-hmm. did it escalate pretty quick or did you kind of gradually get addicted to pills? No, I was using every day right away. 
Um, and it took me about six months to realize because I'm a pretty brassy girl, like I'm the kind of girl that's going to just fight my way through a situation um, that I couldn't. I couldn't quit. You know, it was it made me really physically sick when I would try to quit. And it wasn't that I wanted to quit, but I was scared that I couldn't like that scared me. Mm-hmm. You know? How long were you using before you realized it might be dangerous for me to quit these? Um, about six months. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that seems pretty quick. Does it? I, I, mean, oh, well. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. I look back at my addiction when I started drinking at 14 and didn't quit until I was 45. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like a long span of time. Now, I knew throughout a good chunk of that that I had a problem. You know what I mean? But six months seems like a pretty small window to be like, oh, wow, these guys got me. But I didn't. I mean, it definitely escalated after that. And I did not know that. Um, I had a problem other than just I was physically addicted to them, which I thought I could handle. In fact, I did quit taking them and went to the emergency room because I was having a lot of problems with it. And um, basically what happened is I just fought it and then I ended up getting pregnant again. And at that point, I was terrified because I'm a, you know, I'm a single mother with two kids that I'm not doing right by. And, you know, at that, I wasn't religious growing up. My parents were members of the LDS Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I didn't go to church pretty much from 12 on. And um, I hadn't prayed for a long time, but when I found out I was pregnant, I prayed because I didn't think that I could do it. (laughs) You know, I was working as a photographer and had two kids, and I really felt a lot of strength and comfort and knew that it was the right thing to do was give the baby up for adoption. And so I did that. I... um, that was your third child. That was my third child, yeah. Um, I found an amazing family. It wasn't – I mean I met with several different attorneys and went down that road. And um, I was fortunate through the pregnancy. They were right there with me. And I knew I was doing the right thing. Probably didn't know that up to that point. I mean I really hadn't made any choices that were best for everyone else versus just me or what I thought was best mm-hmm. for me at that point. So it was a sacrifice. In fact, I remember my mom even saying, don't – I'll, I'll raise the baby. And I remember thinking, are you crazy? Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> you didn't even raise me. <laughs> I mean, I love my mom, but I mean, it, it, that yeah, was not yeah, the yeah. point of what I was doing. I wanted to give this child a better life. And I knew I was, wasn't capable of doing that right then. So Some would say that's the ultimate sacrifice. You know what? I remember the, the adoptive father telling me that. He goes, I have so much admiration for you. He goes, what you're doing is one of the greatest sacrifices that I can think of, except to give your own life. He's like, it's... He's like, I'm just inspired by your willingness to do this. And it was a it was a really good experience. But after I had um, his name's David, after I had him, the emptiness was greater than anything I'd ever experienced. I didn't get counseling or therapy. I didn't even know how to begin. And I really took it to a, a whole new level with drugs. I ended up on street drugs. And, you know, would you say you were experiencing postpartum depression? I mean, I think I was experiencing you know, your life is like I had not dealt with any of the emotions of everything that was going on. And I just checked out. Well, freight trains, as your dad would say, <laughs> uh, just plow ahead, straight ahead. And right. I'm guessing that from that young age, even with having your first two kids, you were just kind of in go ahead mode, go right. forward mode. It sounds like something different happened when you had this third pregnancy where you did slow down. You had some self-reflection. Yeah. Like you said, you, you prayed for help and inspiration. And, and you, for the first time, in your words, 
uh, made a decision that wasn't just what you thought was best for you, but was really best for everyone, including this new baby. Right. And I'm guessing that's what the adoptive father was sensing. He's, he's like, she's really um, doing something selfless here. Yeah. But that had, I mean, do you feel like that contributed to this depression you felt after? But when you think about it, in your head, and I'm just playing it out if it was me, I'm doing everything that's right. I am prayed and, and all this stuff, and, and I'm doing it. And I feel the worst I've ever felt and the emptiest I've ever felt. And why am I doing good things if it's making me feel this way? That's true. I did. I mean, I remember um, I remember feeling um, pretty desperate for something to fill the emptiness. But something happened at that point um, that was life-changing and still is, and that is that I met the man that I'm married to now. Mm. Um, and I really don't think that that would have happened had I not chosen to give this child up for adoption. I mean, I was a mess, and he wasn't, so it's still kind of miraculous that he said – this girl has something I'm interested in, you know, and he told me, he's like, I think you're amazing, but you're the scariest person I've ever been around. <laughs> you're the definition of hot mess. <laughs> yeah. He, he had just graduated college and never been married or anything. And he, he says he fell in love with me. I mean, I fell in love with him. I remember when I first saw him, I thought this guy, like he had these amazing blue eyes and this goodness about him that I thought, wouldn't it be amazing? I actually met him. Eight and a half months pregnant with that child, I gave up for adoption. Wow! Yeah, how, how did you? How do you meet somebody at eight and a half months pregnant? <laughs> I was like at that? my There's not an app for that, is no, there? No, oh, there's got to be an app. For that. <laughs> no, he came. He was in college with my sister. And they he call came. it bundle. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty clever. That's pretty there clever. They should because it's not an easy thing to go through. But wow. um, but anyway, yeah, my sister. Um, was dating his friend and they were all in college together and they stopped by my parents' house and I'm laying there pregnant on the couch. And we just met and we both felt something, but, you know, he, he kept on rolling down the road. And then when, when I had the baby, my sister and her boyfriend came over to the hospital to see me and he just was really emotional. He's like, it really hurts me that you've had to go through so much. What can I do to support you? Which is pretty kind, right? Yeah. <laughs> And I said, you can set me up with that really cute guy that came by, you know? And so we went out. And again, I don't think he thought that he would. He's like, I, I don't think I could take that. It took us two and a half years of dating before he took that plunge. So, wow. And it wasn't yeah. easy street. You know, he's been through a lot with me. But we really love each other. And it was really worth it. I hope well, what was for me. I don't know about him. You'd have to ask him. We're going to oh, find sure out a little more about Portia's story in just a bit. She's amazing. She's got a book out. It's called Living Louder, the Portia Louder story. You can check it out. We'll have a link below this. Uh, we'll be right back with Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willie. Our guest today is Portia Louder. Uh, Portia, you just talked about how you met your husband, uh, and the situation was you were eight months pregnant. Um, were at this point, were you addicted to opioids still? You know, I was fortunate um, through the pregnancy. I was able to not use, so that was a blessing. Um, my My addiction progressed quite a bit after I had the baby, so... It wasn't easy to quit, um, but I was able to do that. I was I was pretty honest with the doctors, too, so they helped me wean down off of it when I found out I was pregnant, and yeah. So after you have the baby and you give it up for adoption, I believe his name is David, right? That's correct. Um, and uh, you've met this love of your life, but you say you've got this emptiness inside, yeah. and uh, you didn't know what to do. 
did you turn to drugs to fill that emptiness? Is is, is that your coping mechanism? Is, is that what you went to? Yeah. Yeah. My addiction really progressed. I mean, they prescribed Percocet after I had the baby and then um, I've had a back injury. So it isn't a problem for me to get drugs if I want to get drugs. And so I just continued to use. Um, Chad and I dated for a few years and I was working and you know, he got to know my kids. He actually moved to Idaho for a job. And so I don't know that he would have continued dating me or married me if he would have known how dysfunctional my life was. But we just saw each other on the weekends, you know. And um, You could put together a weekend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, That's I, exactly I, what it was, I, really. I mean, but I say that as an addict. Uh, yeah. And most addicts can put themselves together for short periods of time, whether it's a family party, right. uh, you know, a graduation, something that you, you – and we do that for two reasons. One, so we can share everybody in our family that we're not complete mess-ups. Right. And so the next time they come to us, we messed up. He was like, what are you talking about? Remember, I was fine at the family party. I was great at Thanksgiving. Right. I mean, but th- th- that's manipulation. That's the way your brain works. Right. And so it was probably partying Monday through Thursday – yeah. Pull it together for a Friday, Saturday with Chad, and then you, you – and I'm not – don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've done that where you're counting time, counting time before he leaves so you can get the next fix. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was – I mean, unfortunately for me, I'm a pill popper, right? So, you know, I could always just pop a pill from the person. And I think it's so insidious for that reason. I mean, I actually look at the girls that shoot heroin and everything else, and we're using the same stu- substance – but they hit a bottom different than me because I pretend everything's okay. Mm-hmm. And I see that even with women now, you know, Adderall in the morning and Ambien at night. And I'm like, I could never do that as an addict. I can't do it, you know. But at that point in time, I had a substance for everything. So, yeah, it got worse. And so worse. you said eventually it led you to street drugs. How does one go from the innocence of popping pills to <laughs> buying drugs on the street? Well, for me, it went, um, it went like this. And this is... I really put Chad through it, but um, we decided to get married, and I just said I'm out. Like, after two and a half years, I have kids. He had a hard time committing, understandably, mm-hmm. and I said, I'm done. And then he said, well, let's just get married. And I think I was terrified. I mean, I've been married a few times, and I failed on every level, right? And so my cousin, who just gotten out of jail, came and lived with my parents for a while, and he was a meth addict, and I tried it. And I had been using pills for so long that um, I immediately felt an, a high that I hadn't experienced. And so that happened right about the time we got married. And poor Chad, you know, it wasn't a few months before he went, whoa, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, we move in together, we're living together now and have these children, we're married. And he's like, I mean, Chad's as normal as it gets. He's not an addict. He's just like, what? Whoa. And I saw you on the weekend, you weren't like this, what's going on, you know? And he left me and he... You know, rightly so. How long were you together before? I think we were together for about six months, and then he left, and I moved back home. And at that point, I I know, I just, I started going to the dealer's house. Other than, other than like, maybe, I I just don't want to suppose. Yeah. So like, what, what was Chad experiencing? Like, why, so he, you guys get married, he doesn't really understand the extent of your addiction 
active process. Mm-hmm. Right about the time you get married, you try this new drug, drug yeah. uh, called meth. And I don't know if the kids serious. have heard about that, yeah. but it's kind of yeah. dangerous. <laughs> don't use it. And, yeah, yeah. It's terrifying. And, and you, so you start that up about the same time you get married, yeah. and those six months sound pretty rough. They were like, what, what, what did he see change in you? What, what was your change? Well, I mean, I quit my job and kept telling, you know, I had all these grandiose ideas of things I was going to do, and I'm like stealing his stuff and taking it over to get drugs. So you're just taking his stuff and selling it. <laughs> yeah. And you're getting high. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm getting high and I'm kind of like, I mean, I'm in the, I'm in the crazy zone now. Are you, you know? manic? Are you, you know, yeah. you, you know, yeah. and, and staying up all the time and not sleeping. I mean, I don't, yeah. Tyler like, in the third bathroom. Yeah. It's all bad. I, it's I remember terrible. when I first moved to Salt Lake and I had a roommate and, uh, he had tried meth, and I came home from doing an overnight on the radio shift, and he was cleaning the vents. Yeah, yeah and he was yeah. like, he was like, this stuff is amazing. And I remember saying, "You're looking at him going, I, I don't ever want to do a drug that makes me feel like cleaning is a good thing." <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that doesn't that's sound like a fun the opposite drug. Opposite of a good time. Yeah. Right? yeah, but it really messes with you mentally and spiritually. You know, I mean, I I have been working at a treatment center the last two years, so I see girls coming in off meth and off heroin, and there's just differences. But the meth throws people into psychosis sure and so i mean that's what happened to me you know and there's a there's a diagnosis called drug-induced psychosis and they'll usually name the type of drug a person's on but you know a person can come into the hospital and we do an evaluation and we realize they're psychotic meaning they're seeing and hearing things that aren't there they're having delusions um and then we have to rule out is this a natural process like schizophrenia right or have they sort of created this psychotic process through their drug addiction and and meth is a very common culprit for that. Yeah. So Chad decides uh, he wants out. out. Yeah, understandably so. And so I, I move home and things get progressively worse. I continue to use drugs. In fact, I'm gone all the time. I'm going, you know, to the west side to buy drugs, to hang out. Saw some things I never thought I would see. Mm-hmm. And I came home late one night and I remember feeling like, I was in a deep hole. There's a couple times in my life, but I remember feeling like, I mean, how many times has this girl been married? And at my age, I just had so much, so much heavy stuff on me. And sometimes there wasn't enough drugs to use. And when I did use the drugs, I felt anxious all the time. Sometimes I'd get really high and I would plan out my future. Never worked. I'm never going to use again. I'd make a whole list, you know. But this particular night I came home and my son, who was about nine, my oldest son, had been looking out the window crying all night. My mom had been sitting there with him. And so when I walked in the house, she said, I'll never understand what it would take for you to change because this little boy, all he cares about is you. That's all he wants. And she goes, I give up. She just looked at me and she goes, I give up. You must be hopeless because if this doesn't matter to you, what would? Wow. Yeah, it was devastating. I picked my son up. He's nine, so he's a big boy. And I walked downstairs and I laid on the floor and I sobbed. And I begged God, I said, take this from me. Anything is better than this. If I live my whole life never happy again, I'm okay. Just give me the strength to quit using this drug, please. I don't want to hurt the people I love anymore. And my little boy, he's like, mom, come look in the mirror. You're so beautiful. You know, this sweet little kid. And I'm like feeling like the ugliest person in the world. And I committed to never use again. And I walked over the next day to somebody that I thought in our neighborhood could help me. And I asked for help and he was scared because I was like not looking so good. And he said, I'm going to call someone from the AA meeting, which I wasn't really an alcoholic, but that's the only person he knew to call. 
And he sent me to some meetings. And they were really honest with me. They said, you're a train wreck. You need to sit here and listen. You know, um, one guy told me I might be the most selfish person he'd ever met. <laughs> what a blessing that was to have people speak truth to me. And uh, did you resist that truth? Or were you in a place where you're kind of... I did not trust myself. Yep. I didn't think any thought I had was true. And I, rightly so, I've made so many bad decisions. I was probably 26. And I remember seeing a guy in the front of the room at that meeting who had two years clean. And he had done a lot of the same things I had done. And listening to him and seeing the light he had in his eyes blew my mind. I'm like, whatever he's doing, that's when I knew I had a serious problem, but there was also a solution for it. I Mm -hmm. knew it was bigger than just popping pills and getting detox. I knew what I had was something that they had the solution to. And I went up and asked him, what are you doing? And he goes, take this big book and read it, you know, and work those steps. You can get better. And I went to those meetings every day. I did. I didn't go to treatment. I just, I mean. Would you consider that an epiphany in your life? Like, a moment of insight when you saw this guy and you're like, oh, I yeah. want to have what he has. I, it, it changed everything because I knew that I, if he had the problem I had once, if he could share the same stories, but he was clean, there was hope for me. And I was willing to go to any length at that point. But you said it right there and we've talked about it so much on this podcast, how powerful hope is. Yeah. You talk about being in the darkest spot of your life, lying on that floor to your nine-year-old crying baby boy, right. and you thought life would never get better. You prayed to God. You said, I don't care if I'm happy the rest of my life. Just take this burden away from me. Right. And you couldn't see a way out until you went to that 12-step meeting and saw somebody who's in a similar situation who is now living and thriving, and it gave you hope. Right. Hope is so powerful. So powerful. Yeah. And there's been a few times in my life where... <laughs> It's given me the strength for sure. And I, you know, here's the thing that is amazing. Life gets beautiful when you're sober. I mean, it, it was nine amen. months hard. <laughs> was, and amen. It, life it does, does get beautiful when you get sober. Right. But, you, you know, I remember when I walked in and I made this little tiny list of what I hoped for. And it was like little tiny list, you know, just to be able to survive sober. I couldn't remember life sober. Couldn't remember or I didn't even know what life looked like. But I went to the meetings. I did what they said. I started getting honest. What blew my mind was that I had never learned how to have any kind of character and integrity. I'm like, this program teaches you these basic skills, you know? No wonder I was such a miserable person. And everything changed. Like nine months in, I remember exactly where I was. I was driving in the car. The window rolled down, felt the sun on my face and thought, I feel free. Maybe for the first time in my life, I feel joy and hope. But it took a good nine months of craving drugs and thinking about drugs. Like it wasn't a quick fix. But life got way better than that little tiny list that I hoped for. It's crazy, huh? It's amazing. It's hard, and it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So so nine months later, you're driving down the road, sun is on your face, you feel free for the first time in your life. Yeah. And my husband and I decide, right before our divorce is final, to get together and talk. And he says, I love you. And I tell him the truth, which is all ugly stuff. I'm like, guess what I did? I stole your this. I did that. He was shocked. He's like, just the truth? I'm willing to stick it out. Like, if if you can tell me the truth, you know, I can trust you. Because trust is the foundation of a healthy relationship, right? 100%. Yeah. So so I tell him the truth. And we, you know, we get back together and we build this amazing life. I mean, we bought a house. I started a photography business. Chad's career was going well. And... uh I started showing up in my kids' lives. Like I remember the first time I went to a 
a school activity and I'm sitting there with all the moms going, oh my gosh, I'm a mom. I'm a good one. You know, I just, I thought they don't know. Like I was tearful because I thought, man, you have no idea what kind of a crappy mom I've been. And I'm right here showing up. Like I was helping in my kids' classes. I'm doing the real thing, being a mom. And it, it was amazing. And I, and I had four and a half years of that kind of, of a life. Did we skip the part where you go to prison? <laughs> no, we got to get there. We better hurry because what happened, you know, I had four and a half years clean. My business went crazy and Chad and I had more kids and I had a back surgery and relapsed. And about that time, I thought a really good idea was to get involved in real estate because I was so busy as a photographer. Real estate was the answer. I was going to get out of, you know, shooting so much. And um, I initially, I just got involved in flipping lots, but eventually I got involved in these equity deals where I was in the middle and I would get appraisals that were higher than the houses were worth. And I'm popping pills and and it's, it gets ugly. Before we so. get to that, um, I don't want you to gloss over it. You go, I had back <laughs> surgery and I got back into pills. Yeah. Was it as easy as that? I mean, was it as simple as that? I mean, or did you have to talk yourself into trying it again? Or no. did it just seem pretty easy? I think I just had four and a half years clean and thought I could, I could do it. But I was also way too busy to go to meetings, right? So for me, meetings help. I wasn't putting the energy into my recovery that I needed to. I mean, I was just so busy. And then the the other thing that I think happened is I quit being honest with myself. Like I quit holding myself accountable. That's such a scary place for me. Um, I just started telling myself. And and as soon as I took the pills, this is the thing that scares the crap out of me because I've used them so much in my life. They tell me this is my normal way of being and that I can handle it, that I can succeed. It's not meth. I would never see meth or touch meth again. From that point on, it scared the crap out of me. It's pain pills. I can do this. I'm not hooked to like heavy, heavy pain pills. I just, I need to because I have photo shoots and I have a new baby and my back is out and it's taking, I'll wean off later. And then I go to a recovery meeting and I don't admit I relapsed, you know, because everyone's like, oh, Portia, she, she'll be your sponsor. Sure, I'll be your sponsor. I'm just popping pills on the side. I mean, I just wasn't honest with myself or the people around me. So. Let me ask you this. So when, you know, if working with somebody who's had a history of pain pill addiction and then they go in for a surgery or to have a baby or whatever it might be, um, oftentimes the counselor will coach them like, hey, this is important to bring up to your doctor. And so the you can talk about a plan and if you really need those, how to get, you know, switch over to Tylenol, that sort of stuff. Right. Did you do that or did you kind of keep that on the down low so that the doctors didn't, you know, doing the surgery were yeah. a little bit in the dark? Yeah, I totally didn't do that. I mean, I have a procedure coming up and the first thing I told the doctor is we have to make this as minimal as possible because I can't take any narcotics, right? Yeah. Because I have too much to live That's for your too. attitude now. Yeah, but and then you talk with the doctor, nah. But not then. No. Do you think that was part of the addict brain? Yeah, I think it was part of the addict brain. And I think I was just so overwhelmed with what I had going on that the pills just were welcome as soon as I took them, you know. And there's also some shame that goes along with that. You don't want to admit to your doctor or. Yeah, yeah mean, not I mean, anymore. No, not even. No, but, but back I, then. But yeah. I mean, back then, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I think currently that's, I mean. Yeah. That's for a, me, not for, anymore. For a lot of folks, that's sure. a big thing to overcome is being willing to say, yeah. um, I've had a history with, with addiction. I'm an addict. Yeah, yeah. Prison wipes that all away. You got so let's to get to that. So you 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 get out of photography, which is a very successful business, right? Uh, and you get into real estate, and you're flipping homes mm-hmm. um, back and forth. Uh, yeah. You said somewhere in the middle, uh, 
It got a little blurry and a little... <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I remember the first time someone showed me like a $3 million, well, the house appraised for $3 million. They said that I could buy it for like $1.4, $1.5, and then sell it to someone and make a couple hundred thousand, and they would pull the equity out. I remember looking at him and going, why don't you sell the house for $3 million if it appraises for three? Oh, no, that's not what it is. It's an equity deal. You know, the bank knows about it, which... They did. And we just send the appraisal over and they tell us how much they'll lend, but but the house isn't really worth that. You couldn't sell it for that. You can sell it for like one point, you know, six or whatever. And I thought he was smoking crack. I'm like, I, I would never do that. That's like for one, why would you take more debt out on a house than what you're paying for? It just didn't make sense. But I started buying lots and I had hard money loans and everything else. And so like, you know, and I'm still popping pills and a few months later after looking at those deals, I, I just I got in on them. Yeah. And so, so just to to be clear, because I, I don't think Casey's a smart financial guy, but you have to talk down <laughs> to me a little bit. So, so, so even though there was an appraisal and the bank knew, this was sort of a shady way of yeah, it's shady. Yeah, and was it technically illegal? That's what I went to prison for. So. Okay, so but, tell, I mean, I, I you know, um, they called it mortgage fraud because they said there was deception to the bank. So my victims are actually banks. The bottom line is that I gave a value to the bank that wasn't legit, you know, or, or I would give, I mean, you're, whether you're, people are aware of it or not, I, at this point, I've had to come to terms with my integrity was not in line. I made decisions that I, I mean, when someone tells you that a house is worth, I mean, I paid extra money for higher appraisals too. There so, I mean, yeah. Okay. So you were kind of manipulating the system, yep. fudging the numbers. I was. And eventually that caught up with you. Correct. So let's find out how this all comes crashing down on you. <laughs> Uh, you're married. You guys are doing wonderful. How many kids at this point? Um, we had four kids, and um, the FBI showed up when I had a new baby, so we ended up having five. We have five together. So I'm going through a pregnancy, hearing about Five together, so seven all together? No, no, no. We oh, have okay. three together. Okay. Chad adopted <laughs> those kids. Yeah, 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 so yeah. He okay, raised all right. Kids. So yeah. you've got a baby, and the FBI comes knocking on your door. Terrifying. It's so awful. And I'm thinking to these guys, let me just tell you what I've already been through to get here. You can't take this from me. I've lost too much. I built myself up from, you know, the single mother. I went through addiction. I'm having a, I'm, I'm falling on some hard times, but let's work it out. You know, I think I had a conversation like that. And they looked at me and looked at Chad and said, hey, you're going to need to decide which side you're on. They say that to my husband. Because yeah, because those FBI guys are really like soft and nice and easy to work with, right? <laughs> no, it's so scary. You know, they're like, you're gonna have to pick sides because we can indict you on a conspiracy. So, like, if you want to help us, <laughs> and I'm just like, you're trying, like, it's war. You can't take my family. You just can't. You know, and I handle as bad as as someone can. Like, I hire lawyers and more lawyers and spend every ounce of retirement, anything we have to fight this over years. You know, and eventually. Um, it doesn't work. You know, eventually I uh, I end up in a courtroom to be sentenced and I'm facing seven years. Um, there's plenty that happened in there, but I don't think the podcast goes all day. So we'll just get to the part where I'm, I'm sitting in a courtroom. The courtroom is a place where things get real. Like there's no way for you to deny it anymore. It's the most sterile and lonely place I've ever been in my life. And, and you've been in prison. Yeah, I'd rather wait. Nobody wants to go back into a courtroom. Everybody's traumatized by that experience. When you're sitting in the courtroom, I'm looking back at my family who seem very far away because the reality that I am going to get the maximum sentence, I realize that sitting in the front of the courtroom. And someone walks in and says, the United States of America versus Portia Louder all rise. And I'm like, 
holy crap. I am me against them. Like there's no chance here, you know, and the sorrow that I felt for dragging my family through this and what I've done, it just wasn't real to me until I walked in there. It just wasn't. And it was extremely painful. Again, I said a prayer and just said, please give me strength to do this because I honestly thought I might lose my mind. Like this is too hard because I had not even accepted that I was going to go to prison. And, and so the judge asked me if I had anything to say, and I, I got up and apologized. And I said, I, I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to do today, and I probably deserve it. But I would ask you to show some mercy to my family, which I was hoping I'd get. May, maybe he minimized a little bit. What ended up happening was he gave me the maximum, which is seven years and 84 months to be exact. <laughs> and, uh, and, then I, and then he said – Let's take her into custody today, which like have the marshals chain her and shackle her, which for a white collar crime is unusual. And that's when I said, can you help me understand why you would want to do that today? <laughs> and he said, because I fear that you might take your own life because you're, you're, you haven't accepted the seriousness of your situation. And my husband got up and he, he said, please don't do this to Portia. He like advocated for me, did a way better job than my lawyer, by the way. And he said, our family needs this time together to say goodbye to her. And the judge agreed. So I still think I should have never bothered paying the lawyers, you know. And we walked out of there, um, and life has never been the same since. I mean, I, I literally got in the car with Chad. I couldn't speak for probably an hour. I just felt such sorrow looking out the window, just the thought of what I had done. And Chad just kept saying, what can I do? How can I help you? I'm so sorry. And and I I just thought I am must be the worst person to have done this. I just got the the maximum sentence, you know. How could I have done this? Just that whole weight of it came down on me. And and I remember thinking, why is everyone driving around still acting like life is normal? Because it's not. Like everything just changed. And and I went home that day. I had eight weeks before I said goodbye to my kids and my husband. And I have all I cared about was watching my kids sleep, driving them to school. I had a, a business, an eBay business. I said, Chad, I'm done with that. I don't care. It seems so silly to me that I cared about money because it was completely unimportant to me. The time I had left was all that mattered. And we spent that time together. Um, I started writing actually on a blog at that point because I was just in so much pain. And I mean, it was on the 10 o'clock news, so it's not really like a secret. And I just thought, I'm just going to share how sorry I am and ask people to support my husband and kids because they need all the help they can get. And that's when things turned. Like I asked the principal and the the therapists in their schools, please help my kids do this, my neighbors. And people were very kind. You know, they really were when I asked for help. Um, And then I went to prison. And most painful thing I've ever experienced, you know, going through that sentencing and then saying goodbye to my kids. Um, I write about it in my book. And then I walk into a difficult life. Eight weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, I guess you could look at that as as a blessing to be able it to was. have that time, of yep. course, to do all the things you just described. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I could see how that's a long time to anticipate having to do maybe the worst thing in your life, which is say goodbye to your family and go to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, did you at any point during that time do have suicidal thoughts like the judge had had worried about? No, they requested that I meet with a therapist, which was great because the therapist said something to me that changed everything once I got to prison. It didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but I remember telling him, I can't imagine how I could go to prison for seven years. I can't do it. I can't get my head around it. And he said, you know, Portia, 
it will be hard to go to prison for seven years. He said, but imagine being here in your addiction for seven years. He goes, what you could never, you're going to be disconnected from your kids, your family. What kind of a life would you have if you were using for seven years? He goes, in prison, you could become an amazing person. You're not using drugs. Mm. You could study. You could read. You could work on yourself. He goes, so, I mean, there are some benefits to going to prison versus staying out here. He helped you reframe the experience instead of seeing it as just the end of the world. Yeah, but it didn't help then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. At the moment, you're like, like, shut it. I don't want to hear that. But when I got to prison and I was trying to pull myself out of the most devastating experience of my life, I walked around the track and I said those words out loud. You are going to become an amazing person. That's all you have left. That's the only choice you have. Your family depends on you. You have that option. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. And I got, I made a list of things that I could do and... You know, a big part of that was full ownership of my life. When I finally got to a place where I could quit saying, poor me, I got screwed. The government did this and say, you did this to yourself 100 mm-hmm. percent. I found freedom and power. And, you know, so his his strength later on, I was just like, those things mattered when you're sitting in a, you know, cinder block world. Everyone wearing the same khaki color watching TV. And you're like, what am I going to do? I got seven years of this and I I hurt so much. All I can see is my children's faces and I want to die and I never want to use drugs again, but I don't trust myself anymore. I'm so scared, you know, and I probably needed four and a half years for my brain to get right. So but what kind of things did you do in prison? I started out as a um, as a teacher and it helped me a lot because I was like, all right, I'm going to rewrite a curriculum. I'm going to create something that will help these women. Um, I walked a lot. What did you teach them? I'm just curious. Well, the first part, I taught a class called Explaining Your Conviction, and it was like a support group. And we would come together and talk about how traumatized we were. (laughs) We would each share our experience, and also I would help them reframe their conviction because I'm like, well, you guys sound like like hardcore criminals, but let's word this in a way that isn't so hard for people to understand. Like, well, let's simplify it down because I knew with my charge, like – Money laundering, wire fraud, mail fraud. It sounded like I was like a crime boss. But when I simplified it down and said, you know, I got involved in real estate and, you know, I did some transactions that were were illegal or I mean, I could simplify it down without throwing all the big words out. So I helped with that, taught them how to write resumes. I worked in reentry. I ta- I actually created a photography class. It's the first they ever had and taught them all the fundamentals and the elements. And then they liked it. The teachers liked it. And they said, OK, well, let's use the the camera, which was a big deal. And the girls loved that. Everyone signed up for that. So that was cool. What did you do in prison to help you with your addiction? Well, my first year was in California and that was just me getting my head above water. Um, Then I got transferred. I got to go through Con Air, which you do. You get like black boxed and chained and shackled. I saw the movie. (laughs) You can read about it if you read it. Yeah, I had the same experience. I was like, whoa. So I got transferred to Minnesota. Um, That was... I mean, I got, I was in the shoe actually for a few for a few months. That's kind of crazy too. You What's know? the shoe? It's isolation, segregation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. So you learn how to like slide notes under each other's doors and stuff. But I really didn't start dealing with my addiction until I got to the next prison, and that's when I spent about six months just crying. Like I just had to sit outside under a tree and just detox all the sadness and the pain. And I created a whole new curriculum for that prison of classes we used like Victor Frankel's book and other books mm. and wrote, um, help people learn how to write mission statements and set goals. I took accountability 
And that was a big one. I worked that step where you write, you know, an inventory and it took months for me to really own my life. And then they offered me a treatment program, which I didn't want to take. It just made me mad. I thought it's a government program. I don't want to take this program. But they gave me a year off my sentence. So I took the program. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. Well, they made me a leader in that program. And in prison, like, it's not fun to call people out because, you know, you're stuck there with them at night. So I may not appreciate it later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I had one girl threaten me. She goes, how dare you? She just she just told me to watch my back. And I said, you know what? How dare you threaten me if you said you were my friend in the beginning? And she's like, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I learned how to be fairly assertive. I taught yeah. boundary classes and stuff while I was in that program. So I had all these. And then I met women whose lives were so much worse than mine. Such hard circumstances who were amazing. So white collar criminals have a harder time taking ownership of their life. <laughs> but the the, you know, Drug dealers, they're like, I'm here because I was dealing drugs. I'm like, they have it figured out. Like, they're owning it. And and so I started hearing their stories and learning from them and met some amazing friends. I write about that, too. And in the end, um, I have a lot of love and compassion for the women that I met in prison. They changed my life. And I would say by the end of my – so I did my first four years in a high-security prison. And I loved it. I didn't think I did at the time. I was mad about it. But in the end, I did. And then I went to a camp. Is that unusual for like yeah. a white collar, you know, embezzlement sort of person right. to, <laughs> to end up in a high, I mean, isolation. I I'm sitting there like, this doesn't sound. It's correct. Like, it's like, why? They hit me with the uh, prescription fraud charge at the end. And that threw me in, and put a management variable on me. And then that threw me. So like I had no points in terms of my, the seriousness of my crime, but they threw me yeah. in high security, which was fine. It seems, what, what do you mean? which is fine that sounds that sounds horrible it started out that way but um i had so many cool experiences because i was at that type of a prison like the opportunities to serve were way better it was a bigger prison like camp life is really boring when i finally got to a camp at the end of my sentence i was like oh man i'm glad i did my time so you think that because it was harsh yeah and you were around people that were uh, maybe harsher than, right. than your life and who you it forced what insight forced- i grew so much my strength and my resilience and my um the power that i had in my life to take ownership and to move forward i started visualizing a different future um we were like sisters i don't know how to explain it. like everyone thinks it's just so awful what you see on tv is not the case like we were like family and sisters that help each other out. Well, it's probably bonding, right? I mean, it's such a tough situation. It's so hard. If it was easy, like the camps, you don't really need to bond with people. We're like major sisters, yeah. But you always say, Dr. Matt, on this podcast that true growth comes from struggle. It does. And that's, I think, exactly what Portia is saying is because she had to struggle more, it, she had to dig deep. Now, not everybody does, right. unfortunately. Well, but you're, I, but, you but probably you, came across many who did. didn't. But I knew that. And I, I mean, it was my big thing. There were a couple things. One, I had decided I was going to become an amazing person because that's what the therapist said my options were. You right, know? right, right, right. But two, I did not want prison to take the good inside of me. I just didn't. I was terrified of that. So you were determined. I was You were determined, determined to make this work for you. Yeah. And, and you did. Yeah, I had a beautiful experience. By the end, I literally was like, like we talked a little bit about this. Like I wasn't re- – I thought I am happy. I, I have four T-shirts. I have one pair of shoes and a pair of shorts and one pair of sweats. My life is beautiful. I eat tuna fish, apples, and almonds. I drink water, and I walk every day. I meditate in the sun. 
this is the best life I've ever lived. I grew up in prison. You know, I was never a kid. I That's grew up crazy. in prison. <laughs> but yeah. beautiful. That's crazy, yeah. but you, beautiful. You basically caught my up yeah. <laughs> on, your, on your development right. in prison. Right. Wow. So you spend four years in high risk. High, yeah. And then the last six months, they give you a camp. What's the camp? Yeah, they actually put me on a plane by myself. That was terrifying. I mean, after never even being in a car, you know. And you know what shocked me the most was getting on a plane and looking around at everyone on their phones. Because in prison, like, we're all just friends. We talk. Like, there's no phones or technology. And I'm thinking, these two guys haven't even said hi to me. Like, what's up? I want to know who they are, where they're from, what's going on. I'm thinking, I'm interesting. Why are you talking to me? I just got out of prison, you know? I'm just shocked. I'm like, they're on their phones. and they're playing I got, Angry Birds. Yeah. I got, to the, I got to California, and I got out. I got in with the taxi driver, and he goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the prison in Victorville. And he goes, why are you going to the prison? I go, that's where I'm going to be living. You know? <laughs> so they, they just sent you on your own? They did. I was wow. so low security. They said it was terrifying. And wow. the, the, the guy in the taxi, he goes, should I be concerned? And I said, we're not that scary. You know? <laughs> he goes, you don't seem that scary. And I said, I, I did scare a lot of people in prison, though. You know, We just joked. And then when we got there, he goes, you seem like a really nice person. I said, there's lots of nice people in prison. And I walked yeah. into that camp, and I felt like I was the lady there. She's like, you're so happy. I'm like, I am so happy. Like, it's good to be here. Nice to meet you, you know? She's like, people don't come in that happy. I said, I just did four years of nice security. Like, this is just a walk in the park. Yeah. They had palm trees. I mean, I just left Minnesota, you know? I was happy to be there. So it's cool. So you do six months <laughs> at the camp with palm trees, mm-hmm. um, and then it's time to come home. Flip. You have no idea what it feels like to be sitting on – you're sitting outside and with my closest friends. One of my friends reaches over and said, congratulations on becoming an amazing person. And I just start crying because t- I said, that's not even what happened. I found out how amazing you guys are, like this whole journey, you know. And, and then they say your name louder over the speaker. And you're walking out and my husband's sitting out there in his car waiting for me with flowers, you know. I'm like, I have so much love for this man. I mean, our if our marriage was – our marriage is so good now because we did this together. And I love Chad and he's he's like a superhero and he took care of our kids and we did it together. And the world was overwhelming for a while for me, but I knew what – I didn't want to forget where I'd been. And so I wrote a book and I speak about it and I love the women I met in prison. I still write letters. Anyone that gets a hold of me on Facebook or anything else, if you got a kid in prison or a family member, I write them letters – and this is my passion and it's my future, you know. I found something in prison that I, I found myself in prison. So that, that is, it's a beautiful story of redemption. It really is. I mean, I'm thinking this needs to be a TV movie. <laughs> I mean this this yeah. I mean this oh, yeah. is amazing. You Thanks. you know, you found your childhood, you found out inner strength, you found out who you are, and you came out of prison an amazing person. Thanks. You know, and, and, and there's so many people who will sit in that chair and been on this podcast who said they didn't learn a darn thing in prison. And it was the worst thing for them. Yeah. But I think it was perspective and what they wanted to get out of it. And I think a lot of it goes back to accountability. Yep. Once you took accountability for your actions and your life and realized that's a crazy thing about addiction, Dr. Mapp is that as addicts, we can spin this web so crazy and we can point and we can blame and we can make it everybody else's fault. But when you look back after it, you go, I was the one constant. 
Yep. Yeah. I was the one constant in all of this. How could it be that everybody in this world has done me so wrong, did me so dirty, and I can blame everything on that, but I was the one. You were yeah. always there. I was the constant. Well, that's where our power lies. You know, once we completely own where we are, which was very painful because I'm sitting oh, in federal prison. I've lost everything. I have to tell my kids, it's me, not them. And my kids are feeling like, no, mom, it wasn't your fault. They gave you a, the wrong sentence, you know, and I'm like, no. It was me. And and it, my daughter didn't talk to me for two years. She was so hurt because we had built up this story that wasn't true. But what I knew was that we needed to build a new life and it had to be based on truth. And I was sick and tired of feeling like a victim. I mean, you have no power in your life to recreate your life as long as you feel like someone else did this to me. Once I realized I had done it all, I knew I could create a different future. But it's not easy. I mean, it's no, not no, easy. but it's worth it. It's so worth it. Yeah. So how is – you said the marriage is wonderful. He's your superhero. Yeah, he's awesome. And, and I want to meet Chad because Chad seems like a superhero. <laughs> he does sound like He one, really yeah. is exceptional. He's a really good man. How are the kids doing? I think the kids are doing um, really well. It, it's been two and a half years of me showing up in their lives and proving to them that I am who I said I was. You know, I have grandkids now. I have – I there's a picture of the son that I gave up for adoption he is such a special person, and his mother and I are really close. We've been able to re- um, build that since I got home from prison. Um, I think my family, like my little girl, when I first got home, she said, Mom, because she was seven when I left, and I was gone for four and a half years, so she's about 12, and she said, Mom, I, it was so hard when you left, I didn't think I was going to make it. She said, but then I realized we had a lot to be grateful for, and that's when things got better for me. She said, it was all worth it because you're a lot better mom now than you were. Mm. And I was like, I mean, that says a lot for a kid that went without their mom, you know? So I would say all of my kids now. What's really cool is my middle kids, I've got a um, 19-year-old and a 21-year-old, and they recently, we all went to dinner with a couple of girls that their dad's in prison right now that are struggling in high school. My kids showed them some support and compassion and they're very, um, they're very aware that other people have it worse than they do. And I think that's really cool, too. Like they recognize. Their- well, that shows a lot of their personal growth that they can turn and give that sort of support to someone else. Yeah, it's and- a proud moment for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Super proud. Well, that's beautiful. Thank Thanks. you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. I think it is a story of redemption. I hope that uh, the listeners will really take to heart the the fact that no matter how low you are, yeah. uh, a person's determination and, as Casey's pointed out, perspective makes all the difference. I, I've said on the show a lot that um, our, our perspective determines our reality. Yep. You know, how you look at something literally determines what your life is like. And uh, I don't know, Casey, do you think you'd have... Uh, Casey probably would. I don't know if I would, <laughs> I would go into prison thinking I'm going to become a better person. I'd like to think I would, but man, what a perspective. I, I think it's just I, – I think you're right, Dr. Matt. It's a, it's a total story of redemption. And uh, the thing that gets me is because I'm feeling it right now in my recovery is that I remember after the accident and thinking to myself, my life will be forever changed. Yep. And I was going to be content if my life was never happy again. Yep. I just didn't want to feel that way anymore. Yep. And I, and I was like, cool. If that's what it is, that's what it is. I signed up for it. I did this and I'll do this. And I remember sitting in rehab and they were telling me, now imagine your life in a year. And I did the same thing you did. I just, I wanted to have my kids around. I didn't want, 
I didn't want for a lot. I just wanted the simple stuff that I had the whole time but didn't realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted that. Yep. And now looking today, my life is better than I could have ever imagined. And I'm talking by a hundred, a thousand times better than I could have ever imagined. Yep. And if you see somebody who's so dark in their addiction that think life could never get better, please hear my voice. Yes. It does get better and it can get better. And the one thing that you said rings true. It's not going to be easy, yep. but it will be worth it. It's going to be hard. And there's going to be some times that are going to test yourself, but it can get better if you do the work. But you have to do the work. Yeah. I think they ought to hear your voice and read your book. <laughs> if people want your book, I know you self-published it, and yeah. uh, we're going to put a link underneath the podcast and on our Facebook page. It's called Living Louder, A Compassionate Journey Through Federal Prison. <laughs> <laughs> those, Somebody, those words don't go together. You know what? I've had people that have reviewed that that said it's the perfect title. And uh, yeah. they can find it on Amazon if they want it. So, and, and, and I think you should. I mean, I, I think – I mean, because I've never had somebody so energetic and smile so much sit here and talking about <laughs> four years in high-security prison. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, And she didn't even, like, you know, do the stuff that I think you normally do to get yeah. into high-security. No. Yeah. It's so crazy. I, I think it's great. So they can find it anywhere they find books, Living Louder. And you're going around and you went to the MTC and spoke and you yeah. go to meetings and speak. And yep. I'm going to be in prison soon. I mean, I'm off. I'm still on probation until June, and then I'll be in prisons. I actually wrote another book, a curriculum for prisons that we're getting into prisons right now as well. So, but it's happening. I'm going back. <laughs> I mean, but, but as a guest, just for the I day, won't spend the just night. for the day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I can't wait. They're my people. Yeah, I'm excited. Oh man, I, I wish we could just keep going on because this <laughs> right we could do another hour. All right, because yeah. she is just so amazing yep. and so wonderful and so kind-hearted and so energetic and doing wonderful things. Please go check out her book, Living Louder: A Compassionate Journey Through Federal Prison. Portia Louder, uh, Doctor Matt. Any last thoughts? Just thank you, thank you so much. Thanks for being inspirational. That's one of the things. I just going way back. We've been doing this three years now. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect to feel inspired after a show like this. I, I thought, well, we'll we'll do something good to serve the community and share people's stories. But I didn't expect that I would leave an episode feeling uplifted and inspired. And again, that's how I feel today. So, so just for me personally, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And thank you for stopping by and listening to Project Recovery. In case you forgot, Dr. Matt, Project Recovery is what? You know, it's a KSL podcast. Compassionate journey through federal prison. (laughs) Come on. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. 
two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.